Edwin Forrest was forceful, muscular, and every bit the face of American culture in the middle of the 19th century. Forrest fought for that status when he toured through the American South and West before highways and railroads, scenery covered in dust, shouting his lines over halls, filled with people there more to see each other than to see him. Forrest had somehow won the love and support of his fans across a nation just beginning to understand itself in the 1830s and 40s. But let's not romanticize him. Forrest was brash, selfish, often rude, and achieved his fame in no small part due to his performances in redface and blackface. He beat a man who was recovering from a rheumatic fever with a whip because Forrest believed the man had seduced his wife. In spite of his controversial nature, he had climbed to the summit of domestic artistic achievement, and in 1836, only 22 years after the British had burned down the White House in the War of 1812, Forrest went to England. He wanted to show those limey rascals what an American actor looked like. Forrest wild folks there too at first, and was celebrated in the press and welcomed to the country by the British social elite, including William McCready, one of the best English actors of his generation, someone he counted as a friend. If only they had stayed friends, maybe so many people wouldn't have died. This is 1000 Words, written and produced by Michael DeWatley, a podcast dedicated to examining the world that art has made. William McGreedy had risen from obscurity to become one of the most famous actors and theater managers of the English stage. McGreedy was 13 years older than Forrest and was more intellectual and subdued, but shared Forrest's temper. Forrest had American passion. McReady had English precision. If either man had been less aggressive, maybe the offhand remark McReady supposedly made about America would not have led to their feud, but it did. And when England's McReady began his own tour of Forrest's America, Forrest followed him on his stops, often playing the same roles as McReady in the same cities night after night, like a 19th century troll. Later, when Forrest took his second tour of London, he was not nearly as well received by the English and felt sure MacReady was to blame. In his macho man style, Forrest hissed at MacReady during his performance of Hamlet and returned to America. MacReady later said Forrest was without class. And maybe that would have been that. Two actors who didn't get along. Not exactly a story for the ages. But McReady left England to go on one last tour of the United States, urged to do so by his friends in the upper class who felt that British culture was culture and that Americans needed to experience it. Many American journalists and Forrest's fan base did not feel this way. Foresters crowded theaters on McReady's tour to throw fruit at him, to call him effete, and in Cincinnati heaved half a sheep carcass on the stage. Which for me is probably the point at which I would have decided to leave the country, but the big show of the tour had yet to take place. English, sophisticated MacReady arrived in New York and prepared his production of Macbeth at the Astor Opera House, the theater so fancy and fine that they required all audience members to have clean-shaven faces and wear white vests and kid gloves. 
Forrest, with machismo, prepared his own Americanized production of Macbeth at the Bowery Theater, which depended on a working-class audience mostly drawn from the Five Points neighborhood a few blocks to the west. And I wish I could tell you that these people knew that America was big enough for more than one kind of Macbeth, but they did not. On the opening night of Macready's performance, May 7th, 1849, foresters bought hundreds of tickets to the Astor Opera House and covered the stage in rotten food, shoes, bottles full of putrid substances, and ripped up seats from the theater itself. The cast tried to move the play forward, but could not be heard over the hisses and boos of the crowd in the gallery of the Opera House while down the street, working-class Americans cheered wildly for Forrest, their muscular hero. McGreedy left that night ready to go back to England, swearing against the thick-headed brute Edwin Forrest. McGreedy was persuaded to stay by 47 aristocratic New Yorkers, an unprecedented union of who's who, including Herman Melville and Washington Irving, who told him that they would stand behind him. If McGreedy had gone back to London then, or if Forrest had seen that this feud had lost all sense of perspective, maybe the police would not have been called in. But the day McGreedy prepared to retake the stage, May 10th, New York City Police Chief George Washington Matzel told Mayor Woodhull that there was going to be a riot, and that the New York City Police Department would not have the ability to suppress the crowd. If the mayor had taken this moment to say, perhaps we should postpone or cancel this production rather than fly directly into the face of a potentially dangerous situation, perhaps theater would not still be seen today as an institution designed for and protected by the social elite, but Mayor Woodhull instead called the National Guard and General Charles Sanford assembled 350 members of the 7th Regiment to add to the 100 policemen stationed outside the theater. Inside the 1100-seat house, at 7.30 p.m., as scheduled, 150 brave souls prepared to watch McCready play Macbeth. Outside, at least 10,000 people gathered in the street to protest the production. Handbills given out to advertise the gathering said, we advocate no violence, but a free expression of opinion to all public men. The demonstration would not be peaceful for long. The foresters outside began to throw stones at the Astor Opera House, tried to set fire to the building, and the police and rioters began to attack each other. By 9.15, the National Guard marched onto the scene, which naturally de-escalated the situation. Just kidding. After giving several unheard warnings, the National Guard fired multiple times at point-blank range into the crowd, killing somewhere between 22 and 30 people, which is at least five times the number of people who died at the Boston Massacre. Six of the people who died were under the age of 20. It was the largest number of civilian deaths due to military action in the United States between the American Revolution and the Civil War. And on the face of it, that seems like a lot of dead people just to settle the issue of whose version of the Scottish play was best. The handbills given out prior to the riot command the reader's attention in bold capital letters, SHALL AMERICANS OR ENGLISH RULE IN THIS CITY? 
it's easy to dismiss those words as the hyperbolic and intentionally inflammatory message of people who seem to take their Shakespeare way too seriously. But wait a moment and listen to that again. Shall Americans or English rule in this city? That question has a built-in assumption that ultimately who gets to talk, who gets to be heard, who gets to perform and be seen, who gets the freedom to share and express and create, they get to define what it means to be American and therefore have the power to control America. The stories that we tell and who tells them become who we are and who we are not. And that is a power that people die for all the time. This has been 1000 Words. If you like what you heard, please do me a favor and like, subscribe, and review this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. Believe me, it does a tremendous amount of good for the show. This podcast comes to you from the weird and wonderful city of Austin, Texas. Music from this podcast came from purpleplanet.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>